You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. Invite you to turn to the book of Philippians with me. We are going to continue our uh, study. We'll be in chapter 2, and uh, we're going we're gonna to look at verses uh, 5 through 8 here in uh, just a little bit, and um, uh, just uh, just kind of a little bit as a teaser uh, before we dive into uh, the, some of the nuances of the text, um, the text that we're going to look at uh, is really going to center around and, and focus on the, the topic of humility. So let's just think about humility for a moment. Um, somebody said uh, that, that humility is not necessarily thinking less of yourself, um, but that humility is actually thinking of yourself less. And so it's a, it's a catchy play on words. Um, now, now the opposite of humility, if you were to think about it that way, the opposite of humility is really thinking more about yourself. And so we call this, and the Apostle Paul calls this um, too, uh, this is self-centeredness or, or pride. Uh, it, it's the manner of life that lets everyone around you know that you are the center of existence. So that's, that's the idea behind self-centeredness and pride, which again, it's the opposite of humility. So the Apostle Paul, um, the Apostle Paul is clear. If you look at Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, and chapter 2, verse 3, uh, you'll see the Apostle Paul saying this. He says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. And so what the Apostle Paul is getting after in this section is what it looks like um, to not be characterized by that kind of selfish ambition, that kind of conceit, self-centeredness and pride. Um, Really, these ideas that he's talking about, these spiritual concepts, these character attributes, you might say, they're countercultural. Uh, Chris just talked a minute ago about the way that the culture kind of takes things, twists it, and turns it upside down on its head and makes it into something that it was never intended to be. The culture that we live in... Um, really does not value the idea of humility. And in fact, I, I think it could be easily be said that I think the culture has turned pride into a virtue. Now, don't hear me wrong. I, it's not wrong to say, man, I'm proud of those Huskers, right? Or I'm proud to be an American. It's not wrong to say that. What matters is what happens inside of your heart when you say those things. Or what's happening in your heart when you say those things. So, um, to speak of humility is an extremely counter-cultural counter instruction. It's something that goes against the grain of the pop culture that we live in. So, um, this is kind of the way that I thought my way through it. Your experience may be a little bit different, so let the Spirit do what He wants with you. This is just kind of the way I have experienced um, the culture that we live in. Um, like from a young age, we are taught to 
uh, live our lives in pursuit of the great American dream, right? Um, the great American dream. A spouse, a house with a two-stall garage, an education, good-paying job, 2.5 kids. I've never figured that out, why it's 2.5. few toys, just depending upon whatever your pleasure is, good circle of friends that you've got some things in common with, maybe some community service involvement. Um, and then, of course, the freedom to choose whichever political party that represents your values the best. These are aspects of the American culture that we've, I've grown up in. I think we've all grown up in and have experienced to some level or another. Now, now the thing that I, from my experience that I think defines the, this so-called great American dream as something that's actually pursuable, something you can actually kind of get after, but the thing that actually defines that dream as something you can get after is our definition of freedom and equality. Now, here's the thing. Words mean things. And oftentimes, culture assigns meaning to words and language that isn't the same as it was in other generations. It's important for us to remember that. Right or wrong, I'm not here to argue that just good to recognize that at times, because words have meaning, the context of the culture you live in helps to set what that meaning is. So that's why I say that the thing that makes this American dream something that is actually pursuable is our definition of what freedom and equality is. Now as Americans, our country was founded on the belief that all men are created equal with certain inalienable or God-given rights, such as the pursuit of life, liberty, and happiness. Ask ten people their definition of the pursuit of life, liberty, and happiness, and you might not find that they're defining those terms based on what's written in the Constitution. And they may also not define those terms based on what the Bible says. They may read the Bible and quote some passages and still not be defining those words the way God might define those words. So what you have in all of this is something that I would call nuance. And it's important to understand. Now the problem in all of this, of course, I think as we've witnessed, and not just in the last few weeks or in the few, last few months, but I think we've witnessed some of these problems since the inception of our founding as a nation what we've seen is that there have always been, and there probably always are going to be, bad characters who have and will interpret the concept of this one word, freedom, to pursue life, liberty, and happiness in ways that are actually contrary to the gospel. Okay? So we, need to, we need to recognize that, acknowledge that, and I think it's even wise for us to acknowledge how much that that misunderstanding of the word freedom being countercultural to the gospel actually seeps into our lives and affects us. We, we have to admit that for however many years we've been alive, we've lived in this culture. Therefore, we have been shaped in many ways by this culture, our values, our beliefs. It's always good to have a gut check on those things. The short end of all of this is that uh, the problem with freedom is always, always going to revolve around 
our interpretation of what freedom means. Uh, you guys have heard me say this before. I, I'm, I'm never afraid to say this. I believe that the, the biblical concept of, uh, uh, of freedom, I think it's been hijacked in our country. I think it's been painted up with really cute lipstick to simply cover up the truth that this one word, entitlement, something that I know a lot of us have talked about, entitlement is actually more valued. I'm not saying it's more valuable. It's more valued by our culture. So I, I think to call it what it is, if, if, you, if you're sitting back kind of wondering, like, what are we facing in this world? It's, it's not necessarily the misuse or the abuse of freedom, although you could say that. It's really that it's not freedom that's being exercised. It's something called entitlement that's dressed up to look like freedom. It's got freedom language on it. But it's not really freedom being exercised. It's just the ability to self-express. And the reason that self-expression takes over someone's life is because they're full of pride, full of deceit, full of conceit, full of self ambition. That's the idea behind self-expression. It's entitlement. It's not freedom. Do you have the freedom to do that? Yeah, we could argue the nuances of what freedom actually means. So when entitlement gets dressed up in this uh, lipstick language of freedom, what the end result is selfish ambition, conceit, pride that basically seeks the advancement of self at any cost. And here's the, here's the thing. Within this cloud, uh, I would say, of, of distorted freedom, what happens is we wind up jockeying for prestige. We, we clamor for control. We manipulate for comfort. We whine for acceptance and attention. We position ourselves for power and influence. Uh, the, the other way of looking at this that I think maybe we can more identify with is this. We, we look down our noses at anybody who stands in our way. We, we shun people who see things differently. We, we mischaracterize and we put words in the mouths of those that we disagree with. We assign motive to behavior that puzzles us. These are all things that, at the end of the day, only God knows. We can't assign motive to people because only God sees the heart. Now, some of the clearest places in Scripture where you see this selfish ambition and conceit, pride, and self-centeredness, some of the clearest places in Scripture, some of the clearest descriptions where you see this, uh, you look at the, the mother of the sons of Zebedee, in Matthew chapter 20, verses 20 through 28, and you see her sidling up to Jesus and trying to secure seats of power in heaven for her sons. Okay? That, that is a picture of self-centeredness and pride. How about the Pharisee in Luke chapter 7? The Pharisee who is absolutely disgusted with Jesus, he cannot believe that he would interact with a sinful woman like that. Self-centeredness and pride. How about the other Pharisee in uh, Luke chapter 18? Um, again, religious guys. They quote more scriptures than all of us combined. <coughs> 
the Pharisee in Luke 18 who offers this pride-filled prayer alongside the humble tax collector who recognizes how deep of a sinner he is. I mean, the humble man who's praying, he can't even look up long enough to say, oh, that's a Pharisee. All he's consumed with is knowing that deep down inside, he's poor, he's pitiful, he's humble, he needs God's help. So while it's easy for us to look on our TV screens today and probably be um, frustrated at least with some of the things that have happened in our country, I think it's important for me as a preacher and a pastor not to try to stoke that and go, hey, it's good for you to be frustrated with everything that's happening in this world. Let's, I don't think that's good. I think the thing that would be important for me as I preach God's word would be to try to load the gun and take aim at something that we would call religious pride. A religious pride is a, a, an interesting thing. It's, it's something that is actually indicative of, of spiritual blindness, okay? Uh, the scary thing about spiritual blindness is that while people who are physically blind, you think about someone who's physically blind. Uh, we used to have a, a family that was part of our church. Uh, some of you remember them, uh, Tyler and Christy, um, both blind. Um, the, the thing about physically blind people is that they know they're blind, Right? Uh, the scary thing about a person who is spiritually blind is that a, a person who is spiritually blind is actually blind to their own blindness. So I want you to let that sink in in terms of this concept and idea of religious pride. You're blind to it. And, and, and what, what we need is for God to step in by the power of His Spirit in a day and age where our nation is absolutely divided upon some of the most polarizing lines that I think we've witnessed in the history of the world. We need God to step in and to point out the places of our hearts and lives this morning where we are spiritually blind, full of spiritual pride. The danger of spiritual pride is that it dry, drowns out a Christ-like humility. And I think the danger of that for us today, because of what we are experiencing as a nation, I think is at an all-time high. So here's the thing. Humility, I would characterize humility um, around these kinds of words. Selflessness. Um, compassion. Love. Uh, these are very rare virtues today, at least in the biblical sense. But I do think they are the virtuous traits that the nation that we live in, this parched nation, is thirsty for. It's thirsty for. Here's the thing. I believe that the Scriptures, when it comes to this concept of self-centeredness and pride when you think about that being an infection inside of you uh, the only thing that's going to root that out is if you put on the mind of Christ okay it's not about going out and doing more uh, you can't do more in this category 
This is a gospel category. This is something that Christ has already done this. So you're not being called to go do more in an area where Christ has finished it. What you're called to is to put on the finished work of Christ, to put the mind of Christ on like a hat so that it might protect you. You might remember a few weeks ago me saying that I believe we're living in a time uh, where we are constantly having the attention of our hearts drawn to all the physical things that are happening right now. And yet I, I argued for uh, the belief that this is actually a really massive spiritual battle and that our enemies are not Democrats or liberals or Republicans or conservative or Catholics or Baptists. Our enemies are not people is my point and all the funny little categories we like to put each other in. I argued that our battle is a spiritual battle and the person that you think is your enemy right now very well might be your brother or sister spiritually down the road. And so I argued that I believe what God's called us to is to put on the mind of Christ so that we might fight that battle well and stand against evil in a world while standing for those who are prisoners of war. So I'm reminding us of that because coming out of some of those thoughts, we come into Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. This, this is what the world doesn't need. The world doesn't need a bunch of pride-filled, arrogant Christians who are like, I got the answer for that, I got the answer for that, it's in this passage and it's right there, why haven't you read that? What the world needs right now from Christians is a group of humilitive people who can humbly say, I am a broken person and I need Jesus and I'm here for you, right? What the world needs the most right now is a fresh drink of water. The kind of Christians who are like Jesus who would walk up to a well and sit down next to a woman who is that outcast and love her well. Still speak truth, but love her well. And so you come back into Philippians and you see this picture of humility. You get this concept that to, uh, to walk in humility to, to make war against the self-centeredness and the pride, the selfish ambition and the conceit, would be to put on the mind of Christ. Apostle Paul lays this out in verses 5 through 8 of chapter 2. Now, before I read it, um, this section of Scripture is known as the Christological center of the book. That, it's a big word. Uh, what that means is, is everything about what we're about to read it's all about Christ, and it's the center of the entire book of Philippians. Everything Paul says in Philippians, most authors, commentators, scholars believe that everything he says flows out of this tiny little center. Now, the crazy thing is there's so much said in verses 5 through 8 that we literally could spend days climbing the heights of the mountain of the meaning of these verses. I'm just going to take us on a very brief journey, I hope. Look at it with me. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. Paul says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is the word of the Lord to us this morning. Just take a moment and let those words sink in. 
Reread them again to yourself in silence. Let the Spirit prepare your heart for what God wants to speak through His Word to you. Look at it again. Father, I ask that you would take your word in these verses over the next few moments and that you would apply your word to, to our hearts. That you, by the power of your spirit, would come and speak to us. Lord, I, I recognize that I step into a, a role that is absolutely impossible for any human short of your help, which is to speak the truth of your word and to be your spokesperson. And so, Father, I ask that you would speak. That you would come and that you would speak words that are life-giving, words that are convicting, words that rebuke, words that correct, words that comfort, words that heal, words that redirect, words that invite. Invite us into your presence as the good Father that you are. Trust you to do that. In Jesus' name. Amen. So I have a question. How, how have you been experiencing the recent events over the last few weeks? How have you been experiencing those events? I'm not, I'm not asking about whether you've been watching Fox News to catch up or checking out your Twitter feed to catch up or checking out CNN to catch up. I'm asking about something deeper than that, something deep inside of you, right? How have you emotionally and spiritually and relationally been experiencing the events of the last few weeks? Maybe you're disconnected, checked out. Maybe you're angry, ticked off. Maybe you're hurt, fearful. Not sure. How are you experiencing the events of the last few weeks? Have you, have you looked upon the news reports of unbelievers acting like unbelievers? Wonder why they act so stupid? Caught yourself there? I'll confess I've been there. I'm not saying it's right. I'm saying I've been there. Have you uh, stood back maybe in shock as the nation around us, which by and large does claim to be a Christian nation, behaves in such unchristlike ways? I've been there. <clears throat> kind of like ripping the band-aid off of something, right? Like, oh, oh, it, we're there. We're not there where I thought I was, right? Shocking maybe would be a good way to say that one. Um, uh, do you find yourself ready for a, uh, maybe a social media fight every time you see a post that strikes you wrong? found myself there, but I like to fight. Some of you don't like to fight. I do, so that, maybe that's my own. I know there's some of you that do like to. Maybe find yourself um, clinging to hope that the right uh, political party is going to annihilate the other one so we can just get this thing back on track. Caught myself saying that. Um, so the reality is I don't blame you. Find yourself in any of those places recently. Just want to remind you, the spiritual pride manifests itself in basically two different ways. Pride on one end of the spectrum is either passive or it's aggressive. 
you do have this term of passive aggressive, just not even go there because that passive aggressive folks are really jacked. But if you're passive aggressive, I'm only kidding, okay? I just you either got passive. If you go back and you listen to all that, it was all passive aggression. Anyways, okay, so you got passive and you got aggressive. And and you know, mostly um um, um passive folks when it comes to pride are gonna typically respond in the form of insecurity or fear. So if that's you, you might be struggling with pride this morning if that's you. Um, the other side of, uh, of pride is a very aggressive form, which comes out in the form of arrogance or hostility. So if you read a, a book, uh, I, think, I, think the, I think the author of the book is Ken Sandy, wrote a book called Peacemaker. In that, he sets up a, um, a, a pendulum swing, and he says, hey, those of you who struggle with kind of the more arrogant, aggressive pride, you're murderers. Uh, those of you who struggle with more of the passive kind of pride, the insecure, the fear, you're ones who are going to struggle more with the ideas of suicide. So that kind of gives you the idea of how pride manifests itself. The reality in the midst of all of that is that, is that the only vaccination for this it's sin, you call it a sin infection, only vaccination for it can be found in the message of the good news of Christ's humility. And the Apostle Paul describes these various nuances of Christ's humility in this passage. I think he does it with captivating fashion. So look at it again with me. Um, look at the things we notice. The first thing I notice is that the humilitive mind of Christ actually belongs to us. Let's think about that for a minute. Something that belongs to you if you're a believer. If you're a believer, you got this thing called humility. It's been, it's been given to you. Uh, this is really the beauty of the doctrine of our union with Christ. Uh, the beauty of that doctrine is that in Christ, you become a partaker in everything that is in Christ's nature. The old nature goes away. The new nature comes. You're no longer the old person you once were. You're now a new creation in Christ Jesus. This is the idea of the doctrine of our union with Christ. It's beautiful when you think about it because we are, we are immediately, in the moment that you begin to follow Jesus, you are immediately endowed with the perfect character of Jesus. Everything that once belonged to you and I, our, our sinful character, our, our sinful nature, all of that has been placed really in the bank account of Jesus, been put in his bank account, and then everything that was in his bank account has now been put into yours. So Jesus has lavished you and I in his mercy, his love, and his, his grace at the cross. And as he's done that, then what happens is all of our rebellion, and you might think, well, I'm not much of a rebel. My pastor's a rebel, but I'm not much of a rebel. My kids are rebellious, or my husband's rebellious, or my wife's kind of rebellious. I don't know. The reality is all of us have a deep rebel living inside of us. And, and all of our rebellion, all of our hatred, sounds like a strong word, all of our hatred towards God. At just the moment when you start to think that you can play God is an evidence of hatred 
towards God. So, all that rebellion, all that hatred, all the filth of your sin, all of that has been placed into Jesus' bank account, and all of His righteousness, all of His virtue, all of His sinlessness, all of His purity has been placed on you. Your filthy rags have been taken away, and He's given you brand new white clothing. This is the picture of what belongs to you and I when we talk about putting on the mind of Christ, which is ours in Christ Jesus because of our union with Christ. See, at the end of the day, at the cross, Jesus actually takes our pride and He replaces it with His humility. <clears throat> but here's the thing. I don't want you to miss this. Because there's a key to this, and here's the key. The key is within moments of beginning to follow Jesus. You kind of take this thing and you put it on the shelf like a trinket to be looked at, to be ooed upon, to be awed about, to be talked about, to be proven about how much you know about said thing. It's an object that isn't actually placed on you because you just put it over there on that cool little shelf and you love to talk to your friends about humility. You love to talk to your friends about Christianity or theology or sociology mixed with theology or political ideology mixed with theology. This is what we do. We create talking points about things that we aren't actually experiencing. Have you experienced what it means to put on the humilitative mind of Christ recently? Because you have the literal, biblical, gospel-centered freedom to put on that mind. And it's what murders pride. It's what murders self-centeredness. It's what murders conceit. Don't make Christ's humility a trinket that you place on your shelf for admiration. <coughs> Some of you may be saying, okay, I feel guilty. Just beat the heck out of me. Thanks a bunch. Now what? What do I do? I don't, we don't have time, right, to spend a ton of time on it. So I'll just give you what seems to be the timeless tradition of the church that is good and wise in terms of conduits of grace. You want to put on the mind of Christ? Open your Bible. You want to put on the mind of Christ? Get down on your knees and pray. You want to put on the mind of Christ? Spend time in community with other believers and quit hiding out. You want to put on the mind of Christ? Go back to your schedule and make Jesus a priority. When you don't make Jesus a priority, how could you ever say you put on the mind of Christ? And then how would you ever walk in humility? So there's something you can go do to make yourself feel better. But I will also say, if you find yourself feeling better just because you go do those things, you miss the point. Go back, repent again, ask Jesus to forgive you, ask Him to apply His finished work over you daily. So I would give you that. The reality is that as you come before Jesus in daily communion, what happens is you remove the worn-out clothing of pride. You take it off. In fact, I, I would say you might even do it as you're getting dressed in the morning, right? You're taking off your pajamas. You slept in them for 10 hours and they smell bad. 
You take those off and you put on some new clean clothes after you shower. You think about, you train your mind to think about what it means to take off those filthy, ucky clothes and put on these beautiful clothes, these glowing garments of humility that Jesus has given you. They belong to you. The mind of Christ is yours. Just put it on. So this is why, this is why Paul says, have this mind among yourselves. It's easy for him to say because he's like, hey, it's already yours in Christ Jesus. <clears throat> now, the second thing we see is that the humility mind of Christ does not seek equality with God. The humility mind of Christ does not seek equality with God. Now, we humans are, are very interesting creatures, okay? Complex, but we're limited. Uh, we don't know what's, in the, what's inside the hearts of other human beings. Now, we do know that, that every person is infected with sin. Uh, we like to say it this way, no one's perfect, right? We, we know that. Um, but, but I want you to catch the nuance once again here. Um, even though we know that everyone's infected with sin, everyone, even though we know that, that everyone uh, is not perfect, here's what we don't know. We don't know the exact strain of sin that has infected another human being. You can't look at maybe protesters or rioters on a TV screen and, and, and somehow make the prognosis of what you know about their hearts because you don't know. You're not God. You can call some things evil and you can call some things destructive, but you can't point to exactly what's happening inside of someone's heart. And here's what happens. We are such fickle creatures that we'll kind of stop there and write things off and not move into the deeper levels of someone's heart because the heart is a scary place. So, if you don't know the exact strain of sin that affects other human beings, it's one thing to know somebody by their fruit, call that fruit ungodly. Quite another thing to give a specific prognosis of a heart condition because only God sees the heart. So, what does our approach need to be when you think about this world we live in? Our approach should be, with other sinners on this earth, should be seasoned with grace. Should be. Uh, should be seasoned with mercy. Should be seasoned with compassion. Instead of hostile judgment. Or instead of fearful insecurity, those two spectrums of pride. I've actually seen people um, this week take the story of Jesus flipping tables in the temple. Um, to make the case for both sides of the argument of what we see happening on TV. It's like, really? Again, a matter of interpretation. When Paul says that, in verse 6, he says that Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, we're invited into something. It's like an invitation when you think about this picture of Jesus. We're invited to lay aside our striving. Invited to uh, lay aside all of our grasping at becoming somebody that we're not supposed to be. We're set free in that moment. This is true freedom. When you're set free to admit that since you are not God, you do not know everything, and therefore you're not in control of everything, and therefore you cannot do much of anything, 
That's a beautiful freeing thing. Because the opposite of what I just communicated is actually a works-based salvation that is like a big, heavy weight. And it's based around all that I need to do to keep my God happy or to keep my fellow man happy. That's a sad place for us to be. So really, it's a beautiful thing. Beautiful thing altogether to recognize that Christ's humility, check this out, it began in heaven. It didn't start when he got here. It began in heaven. And really, really, Jesus' eternal equality with God, that's the thing that actually qualified him to humbly descend to our sin-soaked earth. Why? Because he came not to seek his own self-interest. Like so many politicians today, oh, they get on my nerves. Don't come to seek their own self-interests. They don't come to seek their own self-advancement. Well, a lot of politicians do. Jesus didn't. And that's why Jesus is better. That's why the book of Hebrews is so beautiful. Because you see all these lists of people, powerful people even. Basically, over and over again, the author of Hebrews is like, hey, Jesus is better. So true freedom really is found in the recognition that we are not God. And in that recognition, in turn, we are able to put on the humility of mind of Christ that doesn't seek equality with God. So, in your daily times with Jesus, it might be just a good confession to continue to authentically make, God, I'm not you. Please show me where I've tried to be you in the last 24 hours. That might be a really good question for us to stop and pause on, if you have the courage to hear your father's answer. Because your father has no desire to leave you there. His desire to walk you out of there, which begins with, yes, yeah, son, yeah, daughter. Yeah, that, this is kind of where you were like that. But don't forget that my son's blood, a broken body, has been shed over you. This is why Christians need the gospel more than just on the day when they get saved. You think the message of the gospel was just for the day that you got saved. And yet you don't apply it day by day as you walk out your salvation. Put on the mind of Christ. Don't seek equality with God. And yet ask God to show you where you attempt to do so. Third thing I notice is that the humility mind of Christ takes on the form of of a slave. The humility of mind of Christ takes on the form of a slave. Verse 7, when Paul says that Jesus emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, what's happening is he's reminding the Philippians that they honestly, and this is a good reminder from us for us, the Philippians honestly have yet to humble themselves, to humiliate themselves, to debase themselves to the point that Jesus did. Uh, I always say, like, yeah, this sucks. I'm not carrying a cross yet. And nobody's dragged me out of church and nailed me to the cross on top of the church in our situation. It's a good reminder for you and I that we've not been humbled to the point that Jesus has been humbled by yet. You're not going to walk out of here in fear that you may be crucified for what you believe. 
It's not, we're not there yet. And even if you were crucified, you still would not have faced the same kind of torture that Jesus faced because he took all of the wrath of God for all of the sins of the elect on himself. And if you were to die, it would just be you dying on that cross. So you still think of this in terms of you have not yet suffered in your resistance to sin in the same way that Jesus did. See, when the going gets tough in my life, when my heart is hurting, people mischaracterize me, people reject me, what I have to do in that moment is put on the humility of mind of Christ. And you do that by taking on the form of a slave. And when I do that, I remember, again, things are never going to be as bad for me as they were for my Savior. Now, Jesus, in this text, according to one author, He literally manifests the form of God. So just put that in your mind. Jesus is manifesting the form of God in the form of a servant slave. So you want to know what God looks like? This old song on the radio. Uh, What if God were one of us, I think is the way the song goes. Okay. What would Jesus look like? He looks like a slave. That's what he looks like. That's some strong imagery. In our country, it looks a little different than it does in some others, but Jesus looks like a slave. Take a bit of a trip with me as you're thinking about this concept of slavery, right? With Jesus. The form of a slave. That's the form of God. So Jesus manifested. Jesus washed the feet of his disciples in John 13. Now I want you to think about him washing their feet. When he washes their feet, I said this, I think last week, he took off his robe of power, knelt down, washed their grimy feet, covered in donkey crap. It's gross, it's dirty, it's stinky. If any of you have an issue with feet and you think feet are ugly, it's probably even worse for you. I have one of my daughters, whenever she thinks of feet, she wants to puke. I don't know why. Weird. Jesus is washing his disciples' feet. Now, pause. Hold that image. Hold on to it as best you can. Washing his disciples' feet. He's literally washing the pride-filled feet of the men from Matthew 20 who were vying for position in heaven. And those two men who wanted that star-studded place sitting next to Jesus in heaven, you want to know what they didn't do when they walked into that room? Or the last Passover, the day before Jesus is going to die on the cross? You know what those men didn't do? Great leaders in Jesus' crowd of people. They didn't stoop down and wash the feet of their brothers and sisters. Part of the reason that Jesus did it was because no one else did. It's also a great example of how humilitive Jesus is in that he would wash the feet of these pride-filled men that he's going to die a horrible death for on the cross the next day. So one author, in dealing with this whole concept, he says this. I think you'll find this to be true. Hearing the truth and then making the truth part of your life, not the same thing. I'm not naive. Not every one of you in this audience is saved. I know that. Well, I don't know that because I'm not God. But I'm pretty sure 
if the statistics and the numbers don't lie, there are few of you in this audience that do not yet know God. You have some great religious language. You maybe even grew up in church, and yet you do not have a relationship with Jesus. You do not hear from Him. You do not talk to Him. God is something you do on Sundays, and godly things are trinkets on your shelf. Hearing the truth and making it part of your life is not the same thing. Only the Spirit could give you a new heart today if that's you. I, I, would pray that, I would pray that the Spirit would convict you of that if that's you, and that you would be cut deep, and yet your good Father would still come and, and heal that wound and put the mind of Christ on you. Fourth thing, fourth thing I see in the text <clears throat> is that the humility of mind of Christ crucifies one's self sacrificially. The humility of mind of Christ crucifies one's self sacrificially. Seems like the obvious place to go since that's where the text goes. Must admit, though, um, you probably join me in this. My first reaction to uh, observing stupidity is to act stupidly. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's my gut. I mean, we've been talking about reactions for weeks now, right, since we started this series, because reactions speak louder than your actions, which speak louder than your words. <coughs> so I've constantly made this concept of reactions a part of my devotion time throughout the week. I just recognize my... My first reaction to stupidity is not to de-escalate. It's escalate, baby. Okay? It's act stupidly. It, you could make all sorts of stupid excuses like, well, he's Italian. He's got tattoos, got a beard. The beard oil went to his brain. You know, I mean, you know, at the end of the day, I'm a sinful, broken person who uh, still struggles with self-centeredness and pride. In, in, in more ways than I know. Because there's levels of spiritual blindness inside of me that I need the Spirit to continue to reveal. But it doesn't mean that my first reaction to stupidity isn't to sometimes act stupidly. Uh, my, my first reaction of this last week to anarchy is just to think about throwing a bigger fit. Right? If I just throw a bigger fit than you do, you'll shut up. <laughs> My first reaction to, I've uh, been thinking a lot about injustice. I, I imagine most of us have. Trying to wrap our minds around justice, injustice, equality. My first reaction to things that I see um, that are aspects of injustice, my first thought is how I'm going to behave unrighteously. It's just, I'm just going to cuss that dude out. Really, uh, it, my, my self-advancing conceit that does motivate me at times, um, to see others as my enemies to be conquered rather than prisoners in need of freedom, um, it's a problem. Thankful, Paul reminds us here that Jesus being found in human form humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross in verse 8. 
As in this picture, what's happening is we're, we're being reminded that Jesus died horribly for us. He died for us while we're still his enemy. He loved you and I to the point of his own horrific death. I said a little bit ago, I have not yet resisted to the point of shedding my blood like Jesus did. Therefore, what can I do? According to Hebrews, I can consider him, Jesus, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that I may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Isn't that a word that you need to hear? No, grow weary or faint-hearted. How are you going to keep the strength and the energy and the courage to take another day? By observing and considering him who knew no sin but was made to be sin on your behalf. He's the one that resisted and went to war against sin in such a way that he would die for you while you were that enemy. You are the one who was in anarchy. You are the one who was throwing a fit. And so was I. And yet what does Jesus do? He dies on a cross. Willingly. Joyfully. Point in all this is that Jesus himself was infinitely superior over suffering while suffering infinitely. And he did this for you. And he did this for me when we were at our worst. So let me ask you, well, what does it look like when your self-centeredness and your pride are in control of your life? What does it look like uh, when your thoughts and emotions are not full of humility? What do your relationships look like when all you can think about is yourself? Either how awesome you think you are or how insecure you really are. And if you want to combat self-centeredness and pride, all you got to do is look to the cross of Christ where self-sacrifice became our hope. This is what it looks like to put on the humiliative mind of Christ as you crucify yourself sacrificially. And in, in conclusion, um, it's good for me, again, to confess that self-centeredness and pride do rear their ugly heads inside of me. Often, <coughs> I struggle with judging other people. I struggle with mischaracterizing people's motives. I struggle with the self-congratulation that happens deep down inside when I think I've accomplished something, especially if I believe I win the fight, which, to be honest with you, deep down inside, I don't believe I ever lost one. I struggle with listening to other people um, while trying to figure out how I can jump in to say something to speak at the slightest pause in the conversation. Struggle with impatience, anger, insecurity, etc., etc. The list of self-centeredness, prideful fruit it goes on and on. So I need to hear this message. I need to put on the humility mind of Christ that really already belongs to me. The kind of mind that doesn't seek equality with God. The kind of mind that takes on the, the form of a slave. The kind of mind that crucifies oneself sacrificially. And at the end of the day, I think about that, thought about this throughout the week, praying about this. The one thing I kept coming up with is this. I, I struggle with how to paint verbally 
of the picture of this kind of humility that Christ had that God calls us to put on. I struggle with how do you illustrate that in a way that actually moves listeners, in a way that actually connects with the heart and not just your head, and doesn't also just give you a bunch of things to go do with your hands. How do I preach this in a way that will actually affect the affections of our hearts? It's been one of my questions. Watched a movie this week called uh, Just Mercy. Uh, It's one that I highly recommend. It's about a lawyer, which I enjoyed. I think I could have been a lawyer in another life. About a lawyer who spent his life uh, to fight, uh, I think in the beginning, I'm not sure if it's changed now, but at least in the beginning, he spent his life fighting for black people in the South who were wrongfully convicted of crimes, placed on death row. Uh, the movie really did a great job. Again, I, I don't know that I can paint the picture for us well. I'm going to try. I just encourage you to go watch it if you want to get the picture. The movie did a really good job of painting the picture of the immense lack of hope. So you think about the lack of hope that would seep into a person's life when the only thing that's in front of that person is the death penalty for something they didn't do. How hopeless would your life be if you knew you're going to die for something you didn't do and you're absolutely powerless to change those circumstances? You're there for seven years. I think this guy was. This movie did a great job of painting the picture of hopelessness all throughout in such a way that it just... To me, it grabbed my affections and my emotions. The very end of the movie is what you're waiting for. You can't just go skip to the end. You've got to watch the movie. But I'll tell you a bit about the end. I hope it'll help paint the picture. (coughs) The very end of the movie, the main character, the lawyer, um, wins his first case. And the client that he was representing is now informed that he is a free man. I wish I could display for you the overwhelming emotion on that man's face. The dude literally falls apart emotionally when he hears the verdict that he's no longer considered guilty of a crime that he didn't commit. And he's free to go. In those moments, I, I thought that if I could understand the depth of this emotion as a guilty sinner and when God the Father would look at me and say not guilty because of Jesus maybe just maybe I'd be able to put on the humilitive mind of Christ (coughs) one of the phrases at the end of that movie in the midst of watching this emotional theme play out one of the phrases that happens next is narrator comes on I think and says hey the only thing that stands in the way of the pursuit of of true justice and justice is a biblical category our God is a just God which is why his wrath came down on Jesus (coughs) the only thing that stands in the way of true pursuit of justice is 
a lack of hope. So, what, what could be more humiliating to my self-centeredness and my pride? What could be more humiliating to my conceit? What could be more humiliating to my selfish ambitions than to know that I have been released from death row even though I was as guilty as the day is long? At what point did I in my life begin to shift and begin to think that somehow I was so good, I was so beautiful, I, I was so desired or wanted that God did all of this for me rather than God in His grace did this while I was his enemy. At what point does that shift from the concept of true freedom to something that is actually entitlement with lipstick on? At what point did I become that spiritually blind? How could I ever look upon the imprisoned state of another human being spiritually speaking, not physically speaking. <clears throat> How could I ever look upon the spiritually imprisoned state of other human beings acting just like the spiritually imprisoned people that he or she really is without being full of humility? Without being full of a humility that is characterized by love and mercy and grace and compassion. You see, the cross of Christ neuters the power of pride. So I just, I just want to invite you to spend some time at the foot of the cross now as we close, remembering that His blood was shed and His body was broken because of your sinfulness, because of your depravity, because of mine. That's grace. That's mercy. That's true love. Greater love has no man than that He would lay His life down for his enemies. See, so the cross of Christ is what cultivates the humiliative mind of a free man. And that kind of a man is what Paul describes when he describes Jesus. And when he says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's humility. Spend time there. Father, ask God that you would come in these closing moments and that you would apply the message of the cross again over our hearts, that you would draw us into your presence, that you would do surgery, that you would root out places of sinfulness, that you would give encouragement where we are struggling and insecure. God, that you would rebuke and correct, wash clean once again, rejuvenate, refresh. Lord, I don't even have enough words to put to what you can do in these moments by the power of your Spirit. So just ask for your Spirit to have the freedom to move. In Jesus' name, amen. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.